Hello, my fanist friends. Welcome to my podcast feed. Powered by ACAS Plus, here's a joke from my son. What did the bum say to the other bum? That's a bummer. You know, not for everyone. Uh, so, uh, look, thanks to everyone who's come to see the previews of Can I Have My Ball Back. It's been going really, really well, and uh, I'm really pleased with how the show's turning out. It's officially on tour now from Wednesday. I'll be at the Leicester Square Theatre. A couple of tickets left. Lots of press coming to that one. It'd be lovely to sell out, but there are a few other London gigs not selling as well. So if you're going to come to London... Maybe look up those other London gigs. And then this week I'll be in St Albans on Thursday, Gloucester on Friday, Chorley on Saturday, which is sold out. You can join the waiting list. And Glasgow on Sunday, two shows. I think the earlier show is sold out. Check with the venue, but the later show has some availability. Come along if you can. If you enjoy these podcasts and like them being free, then the great way to pay me back is to buy a ticket to a show or buy a download or a book from gofasterstripe.com. But you can just keep listening for free as well. That pays me back also. So, you know, no no pressure. But I'd love to see you there. If you just know me from the podcast and don't know me as a stand-up, I'm pretty good as a stand-up. It's a good show. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's only made about seven men faint so far. So, you know, are you brave enough to take the challenge? Let's sit back, relax and enjoy whichever podcast you're listening to now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Uh, hello, my fine friends. Welcome to another Rahalastapa Book Club. Today, I'm talking to John Higgs about his fabulous book, Love and Let Die, which I hold up to the camera, even though most of you are listening to the audio. Uh, but uh, anyone who's watching the video can see the beautiful cover. Uh, uh, John is here. Hello, John. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. Hello, Richard. Nice to meet you. It's uh, very nice to meet you, too. I very much enjoyed this book. Um, tell us a bit about yourself first, who you are and what your background is. And you've written a lot of other books as well, so you could take us through a few of those as well. Yeah, that's basically me, basically. I'm, <laughs> I'm a writer. I've been, I've, I've done nothing but write books for the last 10 years. Amazing. Um, I've written books on the KLF. I've written books on William Blake. I've written books on Watling Street on the 20th century. Um, I've got a bit of a backlog about catalogue that uh, right. is, is yeah. stacking up nicely. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's an incredible amount of work. In fact, uh, in last week's show, uh, Dan Schreiber, at the end of the show, I'll ask you to, uh, at the end of the interview, I'll ask you to recommend any books you've been reading. And uh, Dan, not knowing you were going to come on, uh, recommended the KLF book, which we're not going to talk about today. Oh, <laughs> but, brilliant. Uh, yeah. So but he was he was, he waxed very lyrical, which sounds uh, 
uh, is similar in a way to this in this in this book yeah, is it's, obviously it's, it's far more nuts the it's quite out there that one <laughs> it's out there but it's about it's it's about a subject but then the subject takes us out into the world in general i think is 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 what we do with this when i yeah. saw this but i mean i love books about the beatles i'm not as into bond but like every man of my generation Obviously, mm. Bond was a massive part of our childhoods because uh, it was the, the 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 major films I've sort of lost a little bit of interest in. But this book did ignite well some of the interest and some of the questions about him. Um, <laughs> when I when I saw this one uh, before I knew I was going to interview him, before I'd read it, I kind of it felt like it might be a bit like uh, those kid books where they. Uh, they have dinosaur pirates or something, and someone says, I've, <laughs> "Let's take two really popular things and mash them together and see if they work." But it is, it is yeah. more than it is more than that. I have to say, and it uh, and there is a, a reason. I mean, there's a lot of good reasons. What was the reason uh, that you chose to put these two subjects together initially? I, I am aware it does look quite shameless. <laughs> But it was it was it was once I realised that you know the very first Bond film, the very first Beatles single, arrived on the same day on a yeah. on a Friday in October in 1962. Um, at the moment, I just put the two things together. Sort of all this sort of different perspectives on both were sort of released and revealed, and all this stuff about you know uh, class and masculinity and you know our culture and. and uh, um, how we've changed over the past 60 years, it all just started to sort of sort of pour out. And it just became, I don't know, it was just, it was it was too good not to do. But at the same time, I'm thinking, oh, that, just, that just looks really shameless. Because <laughs> at the time when I, when I sold it to the publisher, it was called um, uh, Happiness is a Warm Gun. Right? Right. I thought, that, that's a cool title. And as I was writing, this voice in my head goes, oh, it's love and let die, isn't it? And I'm going, no, I can't. That's that's too shameless. Surely that's too obvious. And I didn't want to tell anyone that that title was in in my head. And I was I had a meeting with the publisher, and I was halfway through. I go, should I just should I just say this? And I I did, and I said it. She was going, yep, that's the title. That's the title. <laughs> oh damn! It's like, it's like it's a pun there. But you know when. When people hear Love and Let Die about Bond and the Beatles, they kind of get what the book is, whereas yeah. you say I've written a book uh, called Happiness is a Warm Gun. People are <laughs> none the wiser, you know. No, it is, it's a good title. I mean, it's, a good, no, it's a good commercial idea. And the book is very much about the Beatles being love and, and Bond being death, which we'll, we'll talk about more. So, it, you know, it, it absolutely ties the whole thing up uh, with with a ribbon. And, you know, I think it, it is, I mean, it's sort of fascinating and and, and a bit... Uh, discombobulating to suddenly realise that your own lifetime uh, is history, but you know in, in the <laughs> night, you're reading about the 1960s and think, yeah, of course, if I was if I was at school, you know, that's the sort of same time distance away as World War Two, which we would have studied. Uh, so yeah. it's, 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 and, I mean, and how different people were then, and how yeah. different people think, and how different culture was, and what was acceptable. How much it's changed in that period. Yeah, and you know, I think how, how little we'd fit in if we were suddenly to jump back there. Yeah, well, you make that point about the uh, the Get Back documentary that uh, it all feels quite modern, and then you go outside and see <laughs> the people in the streets, and you go, "This is like, you know, ancient history." How are these two things like concurrent? But that's you know, the sixth. I mean, it, it's still, and as the book shows, it's still all rattling on, really, isn't it? It, it is so mm. much, and and it is exemplified by Bond and the Beatles, the sort of class system 
in England especially, I have to say, but the United Kingdom because we're all together in this horrible mess. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ian Fleming being the kind of, kind of public school upper classes versus the Beatles being, generally speaking, a much more sort of working class phenomenon. I, I think the, the, the thing that convinced me I had a book was reading a thing that Hanif Qureshi wrote um, uh, about the Beatles, which is, which is brilliant. And obviously Hanif Qureshi... Good luck, get well, and all that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, he'd, he'd written about when he was at, at school, his music teacher had taught him that the Beatles were a hoax, that there was no way, like, you know, those four lads from Liverpool could produce music that was self evidently better than people who'd, you know, gone to the right schools and that came from the right families. Yeah. Uh, it was just impossible. So clearly it was like, you know, one of the better spoken people like, you know, like Brian Epstein or George <laughs> Martin who was sort of, sort of behind it. And he was taught that at school. And Koreshi said this really insightful thing. He says he came to realize that his music teacher had to think that because otherwise it would take too much away. Like his entire worldview, yeah. uh, his sense of identity was structured on the belief that people like him were superior. Yeah. And then along came the Beatles and the whole thing just became a joke, just became absolutely. And you can see the real sort of collapse in, you know, deference to the upper classes over the period of the Beatles. You know, when when they start, you know, if you look at um, Hard Day's Night, when the, the, the bowler hatted character uh, comes in and um, he wants the window open and they want it shut and there's, there's four of them and stuff like that. Um, the question of whether a character like that you were supposed to sort of, you know, tug your forelock to was still, at the country at that time, still being debated. In the Bond film of that year, Goldfinger, a bowler hat is a weapon. Right? It's a thing to be feared. You know, it's a dangerous sort of thing. Um, by the end of The Beatles, the upper classes were a joke. You know, so you get like Monty Python doing the upper class twits and all that sort of thing. The yeah. whole sort of um, glamour around them was just sort of destroyed over that, over that, that decade. Yeah. Uh, so that, that, yeah. And you can't, and it would have happened anyway, but with the Beatles as the focus, it, you know, it, it really happened. Yeah. Really uh, although those tendrils still, you know, certainly in this decade, or, or oh, the, last yeah, decade no, the tendrils of it still, you know, and there's still this element. It's, it's interesting you say that because I had the other day, I just retweeted that bit that everyone's retweeting from Get Back of, of um, Paul McCartney creating <laughs> a, a hit record out of nothing. Yeah. And just saying, <laughs> you know, this is. This is just amazing. And somebody really got into an argument with me about how it wasn't really all that impressive and that pop songs are pretty easy <laughs> to write. And you've got to go, but yeah. you go, as any creative person watching that would go, you know, that is astonishing to see, to see that plucked from the air. Uh, and it was yeah. just this very dismissive thing. And I wonder if there was anything of, of that in it, because it just seems such a, I mean, a joyless reaction to that. But also you kind of go, oh, and if it's, if it's that easy, then, well, then why well, isn't everybody writing Get Back? In, maybe in that person has wrote two songs that morning that we'll all be talking about in 60 years' time. Maybe. And they have maybe. every... <laughs> I suspect not. <laughs> but uh, well, there's, and there's so much to talk about. And there's so many books about the Beatles, and I've read a few mm. of them. I'm not ob obsessive. Uh, but it must be hard, especially with the... I mean, both these subjects, it must have been difficult for you to... And I think you've succeeded in doing this, but to find new stuff or to find a new spin on the stuff at least yeah. because, because it, they have been as you say like John Lennon's entire life has been covered in film 
Brilliant. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's books that cover every day of the Beatles' existence. Uh, I think there's around two thousand books about the Beatles. <laughs> right. Um, and we're still we're still sort of we're still hungry for for more. It's kind of like, you know how um, a Christmas Carol is a story that's so good you, you can't you can't do it wrong. Yeah. And every time you do it in a different way, it's it's still really good. The Beatles story is as a story, let alone you know, their body of work, and let yeah. alone what they created. Um, just the, the relationships and the characters and what happened to them in that really intense, you know, eight-year period is such a, a modern myth. And we, under, you know, we understand the music industry, how they set up the, you know, the, our concepts of studios, our concepts of um, how bands fall apart, you know, how, how bands are supposed to be. Um, yeah. There's so much of, of the way we just think is normal that just comes from this group of four people. It has sort of become a little bit of a, uh, a foundational myth for modern Britain, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's always, you know, I think it is. It's, you, I'm sort of endlessly fascinated by it. I read Craig Brown's book uh, last year, which I, which mm. I loved as well. And, there was, and I loved the way he did that. But so much came out of that. I'm sort of obsessed from his books to talk to, to take a detour for a second. We'll get back to you yeah. in a second with the story uh, of coming back from Hamburg and the, the Beatles take a little bit of a break and Paul McCartney goes back to work and he's offered yeah. a manager job and has to choose between the two. <laughs> and I'm very, very much obsessed with the idea of Paul McCartney choosing the sensible option and not doing the band. Oh, how, di- how different the world would be if that, if he'd made that choice. But uh, all, all four of them had that choice at one right. point around that time where there was the sensible thing that they should do or the Beatles and yeah. all four of them, you know, made the, 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 what we'd see at the time is the daft choice. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, but it's, it's difficult to, th- I mean, as this book points out, it's difficult to think of, um, something with more cultural significance probably than both of these things but you know the Beatles had, had never existed obviously something else would have filled that gap but it would you know the world would be remarkably different uh, different and I think as this as this book shows that whether the, it was the catalyst or the or the impetus behind many changes in life the Beatles were were right there yeah and as we get sort of further and further away from them and we get more and more perspective on them they they just get bigger they just yeah. seem to get bigger and bigger and it's kind of like you know how you know shakespeare is bigger than 16th century theater like the footprint of shakespeare is bigger the beatles have seemed to become bigger than you know you know 1960s pop music it yeah. wasn't that long ago that people would talk about the beatles and the stones as if you know they were in some way equivalent or or similar sort of thing you don't get that anymore now it's it's if if you go on um, google and ask you about united kingdom it puts up this fact box and in the second sentence it goes shakespeare and the beatles you know, that's right, you know, before yeah. Jane Austen, before Charles Darwin, before, you know, Churchill or anything like that. Uh, Shakespeare and the Beatles is how we as a country have sort of come to, to present ourselves and, and, and define ourselves. Yeah, um, it is. And, and, and Ian Fleming, who I didn't know a, a huge amount about, um, turns out to be, I've, I've written in my notes, uh, yeah. he's a rum one, uh, is, my, <laughs> is my polite way of putting it. Yeah. But uh, but he does sort of exemplify that pre-60s, obviously the books were, he started writing in the in the 50s or so, so it was something yes. around there, wasn't it? So That's it right. sort of exemplifies that that pre-60s and that post-war thing where, where the UK is trying to pretend it's it's still got an equal footing in the world and that, that it's secret yeah. service matters. But he's... 
I mean, I suppose what's interesting about all, nearly everyone in this book is they had a troubled childhood of some kind, uh, you know, with with tragedy or with difficulties. Uh, mm. And Ian Fleming's childhood, which again I think it speaks. I mean, this has come up a bit in Rahulas, but we're talking about various politicians of the modern day. Uh, the sort of boarding school lack of yeah. love that these the public school children got, yeah. uh, and the the kind of repercussions that's had on their adult lives and the way they view love and other human beings. <laughs> Ian yeah. Fleming's quite an unpleasant man, and that's why Bond is as he is. Yeah, he didn't come out of it well. And if no. if you go, if you read, I don't know, a book like Goldfinger in particular is one that if you if you read it in the twenty twenties, you, you're wincing. You know, it's <laughs> it's uh, there's a lot in the novels in particular that it's kind of shocking. You know, now these days. But Fleming is interesting because it was it was a similar thing to um, John Lennon. You're right. Almost everyone in this story, you know, um, lost parents or were you know, brought up outside a nuclear family or were sort of sent away to nannies or anything like that. Yeah. Only about George Martin and George Harrison are the only people sort of happily raised by their own parents. Everybody else, there was, you know, some strange situation. But it's, it's a thing more about being sent away uh, for your own good, right? Being yeah. sent away by your parents, which John Lennon had. And, of course, all the people who were sent yeah. to boarding school had that seems to damage people more than actually losing a parent. You know, Paul McCartney lost his mum uh, and John Lennon lost his mum. But because John Lennon had been sent away before he lost his mum, yeah. he never really um, got over it. And he was still trying to work work through it to that day. Uh, and it, it, it does seem to be damaged by that in a similar way to Ian Fleming, who was sent away to boarding school and then lost his parent. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of interest in sort of... Um, connections sort of going on between them sure and and i think with fleming the the point you you make which i think is a very interesting and kind of horrific one is obviously bond is 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 an an avatar of what he would like to be yeah uh, and uh and the kind of emotional detachment from women in that you you sort of speculate that fleming wanted to have sex with women and for them to go away and his his solution <laughs> for that is which you know i think is, yeah. is something that uh is he's not the only man in the world that would think that but his solution uh, in uh, with Bond was to basically have anyone that James Bond sleeps with dies, which yeah. is is quite an extreme solution to to that problem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you look throughout the history of the Bond films coming out. This every time there's a film, they announce the uh, it's a new type of Bond woman, right? It's not like all the other, you know ones from the past which we're a bit ashamed of as if it wasn't the same producers who'd made all these films this is a new type of bond woman and then in the next film they're like don't worry this is a new type of bond woman they have to do it every sort of single <laughs> and there sort of comes a point where you have to go well maybe maybe the problem's not actually the women maybe the problem is bond and maybe yeah. the whole um he sleeps with people and they die is the sort of issue so that's what makes where bond's got to now fascinating you know, I don't know. I don't know if I'm allowed to sort of spoil. You know, no time to die. Well, he dies. Um, <laughs> but the way it's done, it's that the whole issue of that uh, he sleeps with women and they die uh, is moved to the level of plot for the first time. It's it's on a story level. It's this right. complicated thing about there's some nanobots and they're genetically programmed so that if James Bond is to touch the woman that he loves, she will die. 
Um, and he's a hero. So what can he do? He, the only thing he can do is sort of sacrifice himself. He has to, right. he has to die at the end of that film. Just the flaw inherent in, in, in his character, uh, you know, has, has, has become aware. His shadow, his darkness has become sort of visible. Um, it's fascinating what they did with that film to me anyway. Yeah. I, think, I think it's extraordinary, but it was quite a shock for, a, you know, most people who'd been through some really, you know, harrowing years with the lockdown and, and everything that had been going on. And, the one sort of comfort, you know, is, oh, you can go to the cinema and, like, you'll see James Bond and, like, everything yeah. will be fine and he'll just sort of win. To see, you know, that sort of white male avatar um, just being wiped out was just sort of such a shock to <laughs> yeah. so many people. The, I mean, the, it's... Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, that's interesting to me that, you know, that it's interesting to me that Bond has managed to survive all these years despite being such a relic from the past. But, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of truth about certain type of masculinity in there that I think uh, keeps keeps his uh, largely male audience, I think, uh, <laughs> invested in it. But the, but it's interesting how, for example, how little of the Beatles you listen back to and go, ooh, you know, given yeah. it's from the nineteen sixties. I mean, there's a couple of bits that, you, and I think you point out the uh, the John Lennon song, uh, "You Better Run for Your Life, Little Girl," is is a pretty <laughs> pretty terrifying song. Although it's a still a song that's about it's a mm. you know it's about something that's real and it's horrible, but but the person singing it's horrible, uh, and so it's a, it's sort of artistically maybe valid, even though it's quite a difficult. Listen, but they, but they, I guess because they were writing about love and they were writing about things that are fairly universal, and they were, and as you say, they're a very different kind of masculinity. Very yeah. little of it, very little it needs re re looking it, it, at. It is considering how much work they did, and yeah. you know how much that work has been studied. We've got, you know, it could, it could have been much worse than definitely yeah. John Lennon's. But Lennon's interesting because he's very much the um, uh, the, the, the 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 flawed healer, I guess you'd call it that sort of archetype. It's it's you know he he's in a bad place. He's from a bad background. He comes from this sort of he's got a very sort of violent sort of culture around him, uh, sure. and he and he wants to get better. Uh, and it's always about attempting to sort of get better, which is which is the only thing you can do if you're in in you know in a a, a bad position. Yeah, all you can do is try and get in, get you know improve and and head towards the light and become become better. And he never really quite manages it, but it's the fact that he's trying to do it which makes him kind of so um, uh, reliable, well important and 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 uh, and necessary. And when like the Lenin estate tries to present him as a saint. You know the the peace icon of Saint John. <laughs> it sort of just it ruins him slightly because it that's lesser than what he was. You know yeah. the uh, um, the flaws and all thing about Lennon uh, is important because we are all flawed. You know, and we all need to sort of see our shadow, see our sort of dark side, and sit and try and imp- improve ourselves. And in some ways, that's that's what's interesting about Bond is that you know Bond has this really odd way of just sort of saying to its audience well you'd like to be me wouldn't you yeah. <laughs> you'd like my life a little bit you know no one fantasizes about sort of being jason Bourne. bond is it's not what men uh should be or what men need to be sort of what men want to be and yeah. so it's never going to be you know ideologically pure or easy to, to define but by putting it out into the light like that uh I think that is a, a thing we do need to do. We do need to explore those things. And you can see the character sort of shift over the decades. Uh, it changes an awful lot. Yeah. You know, he's not like the, how he was in the books. He's not like Sean Connery, um, who, you know, 
it was a real sort of no means yes. You know, there's a real sort of uh, consent issue issue in a lot of yes. uh, things. And then it moves into the 70s and that improves, but there's all this chauvinism um, and women drivers remarks and all this sort of thing with Roger Moore. And then you get, you know, Timothy Dalton and he's much more asexual and that's not right. And so you can sort of see the character sort of shifting and changing over the years as this sort of idealized representation of, you know, what men sort of want to be. And overall it's a positive thing you know it really has moved quite a bit to the extent that you know the daily mail you know for the last craig uh daniel craig film the word woke you know wasn't sufficient for them and that they they, <laughs> they formed the word super woke you know to describe daniel craig and all the you know the daily telegraph writers writing furious articles about the fact he turned up in like a pink jacket for the premiere <laughs> you know all this all this sort of stuff's going on the, the, the change when you see it laid out is striking and yeah. you know it is good it is good the way it's changed for all I mean, that good. no one's going to defend bond as you know <laughs> yeah no i mean it is sort of you know often people go well this someone was like this in the past so you know they they're doomed forever but if some some mm. i think with john lennon it's a good example though like you say it is very complicated with john lennon because he said certain things uh, that he was living an opposite, like you know, just in terms of having no possessions when he had a lot of possessions, <laughs> um, for example. He had but, a so lot could, of possessions, but but he but he moved in the you know very much in the right direction from his early life and his and and and, and that's what you want. I got to feel mm. with Bond. I you know you you mentioned Tarzan, uh, which I think is interesting, and mm. how Tarzan when we weekly when we were growing up, Tarzan, and even into the nineties, really, Tarzan was a huge thing and it was a huge story, and now. You know, you couldn't really get arrested if you tried to to bring. I don't think you could even yeah. do Tarzan in a tongue in cheek, ironic way. Really, I mean, it's 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 the sort heart, of gone. The heart of the story of Tarzan is if you take you know an upper class white lord as a baby and put them <laughs> in the jungle, they will become king of that jungle <laughs> because they're best. They're you know, yeah. and it, there's no way you know you can we can live with that anymore. We're not, no one's going to go for that in, in any way, shape. And it's quite interesting that when um, they first changed Bond, when Sean Connery moved on, uh, Cubby Broccoli would do all these interviews and we'd say, no, Bond is a character that you can continually, you know, recast and reinvent. He's like Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan, you know, there's yeah. any act can sort of play him. And, you know, with Sherlock Holmes, that's fine. That sort of continued. But the question of now, whether Bond is more like Tarzan, and his innate flaws um, uh, are too much for the 21st century is quite an interesting one. And it's going to be yeah. very interesting to see where they go with the next film. Um, and they're taking a long time. You know, they finished <laughs> the last one in like 2019 and they're still not, you know, it's odd that they haven't like recast and, and got a film yeah. out. Because um, so, it's going to be the first millennial bond. Right, so they're going to be around the age of thirty or something. They're going to be a millennial, <laughs> and you know the idealized vision of masculinity for someone of that age is—it's probably someone like Harry Styles, right? But yeah. if you were to cast Harry Styles as James Bond, you can imagine how the internet and the <laughs> Fleet Street would just utterly lose their their minds <laughs> over it. So it's it's it's, it's tempting to say, oh, it's it will be like Tarzan and it's out of date. But people have been saying that for decades. They've been saying that from about 1967. And the thing with James Bond is it's, and again, the Beatles, neither of them make any sense. Neither of them are utterly uh, implausible. The idea that you can like make an action film based on one character 
and then go on and make you know 25 sequels you know over <laughs> 60 years each of one which makes money each of one is really successful it's just impossible right? you can't do it. Yeah. if you could do that every hollywood producer would be doing it you know there'd be nothing there it's 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 insane right yeah and if it wasn't fact it was so familiar to us and we're so used to it you know um we'd just go no there's no no possible way that's that's just that's just really... so there is something about the way bond has become a tradition and become uh, um trapped in the establishment um which is which is a powerful magic tradition um that means he sort of keeps going and keeps going and keeps going so i'm not quite you know of the view that yeah there's not gonna be any more bond it's it's out of date anymore I, there's something about the way he keeps going that i find really fascinating i agree but it's sort of uh, the the equally weird thing about it is i think he has to have one foot in the past for it to work so it's like you say <laughs> well in the first film he's, he's slagging off the Beatles and you know they, they made yeah. the decision with George Lazenby are we gonna give him long hair and no we won't give him long hair yeah uh, so you know they in a way he's got to he represents he sort of represents something in the past yeah and yet but yet you're still sort of trying to stretch him into the future at the same time absolutely you know he's still an establishment killer you know yeah he, he basically he's got permission he's got the paperwork he's got the license to kill from the queen you know so he can't that's sort of what traps him in 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 the past uh how he sort of changes and deals with that is is what's interesting yeah and it's fascinating as well the, the, the point you make about q that he's basically an arms manufacturer yeah. his, job is, his job is to kill lots of people and yet he's seen as this kind of ch- 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 you know you all love that character Absolutely. whoever plays it really but especially desmond llewellyn and uh yeah i felt, I felt a bit bad writing that because i knew a lot of people would be going oh god i can't i i, I love desmond so well and now i can't see him in the same way anymore but, hey hey i'm ryan reynolds at Mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Uh, I mean, there's a lot to talk about in this in this book, and we're not going to be able to talk about all of it. Um, I, you know, I think it, I think it just it's a, it's a very interesting look at our our own history and our social history about trying to identify 
both what it means to be a man and what it means to be British, which and I think mm. and 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 this sort of swirling mist on both of those things over the last sixty years that we haven't really come to any conclusion about. I mean, just yeah. there's lovely little, um, you know, little moments. I didn't know this thing. The George, the way they tested whether George Lazenby uh, was going to be a suitable Bond for his, <laughs> uh, very old-fashioned way is worth that. Can you can you tell us about how how they made sure George, George Lazenby was the right person to be Bond? Yeah, I don't think they do that nowadays. <laughs> I, I don't think they did this with you know Daniel Craig. Well, you'd have to ask Daniel Craig. We'll ask but, him but, you know, the, they, the producers sent a couple of prostitutes to his room and stayed to watch, right, to check that he wasn't gay. I mean. <laughs> there's so much to unpack in that <laughs> I mean just that it mattered <laughs> that, yeah. that it would have mattered that that was the way well, to I'm, test and you, you know, sat and like, better sit and watch you could just I, ask them afterwards <laughs> it was just at the, it was. I mean homosexuality was still illegal at that point, it was just yeah. about to change at that at the exact, exact same yeah. point um, and now in like Skyfall, James Bond makes references to um, you know or hints at homosexual uh, uh, experiences in the past and no one bats a lie you know it's it's yeah. it's, it's another example of just just the, the the size of the change we've had yeah it's it's, it's great and i didn't realize i hadn't realized i didn't know much about george lazenby's bond i think i have seen that i definitely have seen the film but uh, i didn't realize it was i thought he'd been sort of pushed out for for you know not being as sean connery enough but in fact he he turned down the opportunity he did. He did, but they were, they were clearly there was beef. They were, clearly yeah. wasn't getting on. And the, the whole thing about um, how he he was uh, told not to turn up at the Leicester Square premiere because he'd grown his hair, yeah. sort of George Best sort of length, and had a beard. Um, it seems it seems shocking now. He turned up anyway and, and got into <laughs> a huge argument with with Kirby Broccoli and was uh, not allowed to go to America because of this. But you yeah. know, he doesn't look like a crazy hairy man. You know, the idea that an actor can have different hair than on screen and off, it's not a problem. But it's just an indicator of um where the culture wars were at the yeah. time. Because we there's always been culture wars. And the issue of hair on men was such a, a divisive thing at that sort of point. And, you know, the, the, the Broccoli's wanted nothing to do with sort of long-haired sort of men. They were on the other side of this sort of divide. And it's a nice indication of um, when there are these culture war issues. A, they always look utterly absurd a few years later. Uh, but B, <laughs> they're never really quite about what we say they're about. They're, they're, there's much larger sort of changes and shifts sort of going on in... Uh, under, underneath in the sort of cultural world, and the, and it's just um, uh, the, the the little sort of excuse that pops up, like long hair on men, is the thing that sort of gets the focus. But they really they represent a much larger sort of change that's oh. that's occurring. And you know, George Lazenby, one of the reasons he sort of gave it up was because he just thought it was over, it was dead. You know, it was make peace and not love. He was he was um, kept himself on set, kept himself to himself on set, trying yeah. to learn uh, Beatles songs on his guitar. You know, uh, and it was the Beatles' world then. The Beatles had changed everything, and everything had won. And uh, he thought, you know, a, a establishment killer in a, in a dinner jacket, for God's sake, you know, we don't want yeah. anything to do with that. It's all over. I'll, I'll sort of walk away, not knowing that at that point, you know, it was the Beatles that were about to die. Yeah. And James Bond was just going to keep going and keep going and, and keep going. Yeah, it's a, there's a sort of, I thought it was a slight echo of the man who turned down the Beatles with George Lazenby, the man who turned down Bond because of the Beatles. It's the same, you know, he yeah. obviously obviously would look back on that with 
some regrets later he, in his life. He did uh, <laughs> at some point in the seventies when he had children and and uh, no work. He did. Uh, just, yeah, he came to the conclusion it was probably a bad move to yeah. <laughs> turn down that million pound <laughs> signing fee in the seven films that were being offered. <laughs> there we go. Um, uh, you touch on one of my uh, my favourite subjects, but I think equally this is again a, a thing that sort of started it in with not start at this point, but was a minor thing in the conspiracy theories about the death of Paul. It's obviously become mm. turned into a much big bigger issue, but uh, you're you're fairly dismissive, correctly of the, <laughs> of the chances when you look at that uh, the, the get back and see see the fake Paul creating music yeah. better than the original Paul would have made. You kind of think that was, was that was a good substitution. <laughs> it was a great bit of casting, wasn't it? How <laughs> really found that fake Paul? Um, <laughs> Yeah, but it, I mean, it was interesting that the, those stories had been bubbling around for a few years, but they they really came um, to the the forefront at that period in in nineteen sixty nine, sort of when the Beatles kind of had split up, but they sort of, you know, it wasn't wasn't clear whether John was going to change his mind, and it would, you know, it was it was this weird period where the Beatles split up, but nobody knew, and. The problem was sort of, as John would see it, was that the Beatles become Paul and his sidekicks, you know, become so much the Paul McCartney show. So it's like Paul was the Beatles. Um, and so the fact that the world gets obsessed with the idea that Paul is dead at the point when Paul is the Beatles and the Beatles are dead is kind of is kind of weird. Yeah. You know, Paul was having a real breakdown at this time. He was in a really bad place and uh, it was really um, fortunate that he had Linda to sort of get, get him get him through it. Um, it's almost like the world sort of picked up on his on his distress in some way. Yeah, yeah the, the, the Paul is dead, you know, saga. It's fun. I mean, we all like it. It's all great. <laughs> but there is, the timing of it is really interesting. I think. Yeah, and whether that leads to Q and you know, there are still if you go online, there are still people vehemently arguing that, despite the you know the evidence coming out that. It was all like it's basically an American student radio hoax or something like a radio yeah. hoax, isn't it? Uh, and so all the evidence well, is there, but you but you can't convince them. There are people comparing the ears of the the pre and post Paul McCartney. <laughs> like nobody would have gone. You look so much like Paul McCartney, and then yeah. you just you just disappeared, and no one went. Oh well, you know, I suppose he just went. To, it's, it's a bit weird, but yes. But anyway, that, yeah. that, that's well, interesting. Whereas if John, because Paul, you know, was Paul, but John did change so drastically, you know, yeah. a, around Rishikesh, the the all the humour dropped out of him. He became so serious. You know, if people had said it's a different actor being John Lennon, you could see <laughs> people sort of going for that. But yeah. with Paul, it's it's just mad. You know, well, yeah, that, and the point you make about the the the, bed, the love in in the bed where it says hair piece, and there isn't a joke about hair piece. <laughs> yeah. which, <laughs> 1960s, John would absolutely have been all over that. So it's you know, and he obviously didn't even spot it, or if he did, he, he left it. I mean, it, it's yeah. a nice, um, it's nice to have the reevaluation of Paul, which has sort of, I mean, you explain that really well how how John came to be seen the cool one, and and Paul mm. McCartney became naff, but Paul McCartney became naff at the sort of the same time as 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 but you know, it's kind of interesting. You mentioned Alan Partridge because Alan Partridge yeah. preferred Wings to the Beatles. Beatles yeah. and was obs- and was obsessed <laughs> with sort of basically Roger Moore Bond. So those those two sort of nineteen seventies iterations of both were were sort of naff enough or yeah. seen as naff enough at the time to to for someone like Alan Partridge to think they're amazing. But yeah. it, but it is so interesting how you know Paul McCartney's 
was was both blamed for the breakup of the Beatles and um, and how his subsequent work, apart from you know Live and Let Die, uh, was was sort of pilloried at the time when it, when it is quite respected now. Yeah, I mean, time's been very, very kind to Paul McCartney. And yeah. um, well, time's also extremely cruel. You know, in the sort of the me decade, the, when we sort of like, we looked up to these sort of lion-eyed sort of rock gods who, you know, uh, you know, drank and slept with everything and, you know, just were complete libertines. Um, now, you know, we look at them and we go, oh, they're, they're they're bands, them, aren't they? They're, they're, they're not good. But all, all the time was going, it's about, you know, love, it's about family, it's about home, it's about all these things. The naffest possible <laughs> sort of attitude, you know, say in the 80s or, or something like that. And it holds up sort of really well. There's you going, oh, we should be vegetarian, you know. Just going, oh, God, <laughs> say, that's, that's the worst thing now, thanks to climate change and and and, um, and Linda McCartney's company and all these sort of, sort of yeah. things. He just, you know, he it's 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 quite interesting trying to explain to someone from generation z how naff paul mccartney used to be seen yeah because they're they're really confused by it they're really bewildered by it they'll dismiss john lennon quite quickly but you know paul mccartney surely he wrote all these extraordinary songs you know what's the problem (laughs) (laughs) It is sort of interesting. I mean, I'm I'm desperate to get Paul McCartney on Rahalistopher, uh, which which mm. I've come close than I imagined I would. He did do Adam Buxton's podcast. Oh, uh, did but, yeah, yeah. yeah, but um, it's it's not an impossibility. But it it really is like, you know, the the opportunity to talk to someone who will be almost mm. certainly a, a thousand years time. People will know who you're talking about. Or 500 years time, whatever. How do you live with that knowledge? Because <laughs> he does know. He, he does know how important the Beatles are. He is quite big. Yeah. Uh, um, how big they are. Um, you know, he, he's walking around amongst all these people who will be forgotten. You know, once their grandchildren have died, everyone will sort of be forgotten. He is a, he is a chapter in the history books. Yeah. You, know, you could so easily turn into a monster. Surely it, the temptation to turn into a monster would be too great. And that's why this sort of forced jolly everyman persona that can wind people up and, you know, because it's like, you're not everyman, you're, you're Paul McCartney, for God's sake. This is, this is, this is something insincere and fake about your everyman this sort of thing um it probably is the 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 wisest thing he's he could have done you know because he is living you know a happy good life despite you know um the fact of who he is and and uh and the enormity of what he's done yeah and you know i was just listening to um matthew perry's audiobook which is obviously also about becoming wanting to be the most famous person in the world and sort of becoming the most famous person in the world and then <laughs> and then failing to cope with it. And and yeah. he doesn't come out well from his own book. You know, he <laughs> don't you don't really it's very sad. Uh and, mm. and he doesn't seem hugely self aware. Uh and he's sort of full of himself and yet empty of himself at the same time. It's sort oh, of uh-huh. it's sort of quite it's worth I think I've talked to maybe I talked to Dan about that in the last week's episode, but it's worth it's worth having a read or a listen. But but yeah, that is remarkable that Paul obviously had moments where he was where where things went wrong and where he was down and made some questionable choices about wives, perhaps uh, or one wife at least. <laughs> but uh, but you know he has yeah yeah. I mean it's it must be such a difficult thing to cope with that level of fame and and still come out relatively. 
I mean, um, you know, not yeah. not end up in an emergency room about to die from. And maybe they were lucky, or maybe he was lucky that he went sort of down the pot route rather than the heroin route. But um, yeah, because yeah. they they were wild shaggers in the yeah. in the sixties. You know, they were not faithful. He was not faithful to Jane Asher for you know more than no. a minute. You know, he was a real sort of libertine until he got married, and this yeah. this until you know he had uh, Linda's daughter Heather to look after. This the, the sort of change that came over him was really quite extraordinary. He yeah. could so easily have. Um, well, we've just so many other examples of how to go wrong as as a rock star. But you know, and it's also in the sixties and the seventies where literally anything you know, and you do yeah. hear stories about other rock stars where they they pushed it so far and you know in into terrible areas. But it's you know, it, it was in terms of just being a hedonist, that was the dream time to be a hedonist, and to again to come out of that without turning into James Bond and turning into a cult, yeah. you know, to still. To still be capable of loving someone, I think, is mm. really interesting. But to not not turn unpleasant, not become arrogant. You know, I mean, again, you see it now with footballers. People get to this level, and you know, and stars, they get to a level where they yeah. think they're untouchable and and become, and, you know, and and believe that everyone loves them and wants them, and and then that can lead to some some terrible places. So yeah. Where, he's, where... He's... Yeah, whereas it's George, the most spiritual of the Beatles. He's the, he's the one into the fast cars. He's the one into the womanizing. Yeah. He's the most Bond-like on that sort of on that sort of you know level. But it must have been fun to. I mean, some of the links I think are are, are very very interesting. Some of them are a little more fun and tenuous. I mean, Spectre and yeah. Spectre is a kind yeah. of is a fun thing to spot Phil Spectre. Uh, and, but they, but it does it does sort of add up. But it, did you find as you were going along you were they would all of these sort of coincidences and these connections were were just falling into your lap or would or were you forced yeah, to Yeah. And, you know, a lot of them are just funny. You know, yeah. they, they don't mean anything. They're, they're just funny. A lot of them, others, you just go, I just love the fact that of all the people to end up with the Bond girl, it was Ringo. You know, yes. He married Barbara back, the spy who loved me. Uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of them are really sort of nice. Um, but because, the, you know, the footprint of both things was so huge, they just overlap constantly all the time. Yeah. You know, uh, obviously Paul McCartney recording the, the theme song to Love and Let Die, uh, Live and Let Die, <laughs> yeah. uh, being an obvious, obvious sort of one. Uh, but it sort of gave me excuses to write about people like Christopher Lee. Yeah, I was going to say, know, yeah. Who was Scaramanga at the same time as he was on the cover of the Wings album and, and, yeah. and things like that. That sort of tied in with visions of, you know, idealised uh male lives and and uh and, and things like that and finding a crossover between them you know yeah i mean it's 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 a generally great book it's really interesting to go over the history of both the projects but also of of, of where we're at and i think it's uh, as a country and as men i think those things mm. are, are really fascinating and I th- you know it does i think just the shadow of that that public school boarding school Sort of disaster hanging over yeah. us, and hanging over our politics, and, and the damage it's done in the last ten years is very interesting. I think, yeah. I think, I think there's a book which might be good for you, the mm. kind of thing you do. I can't do it because I'm involved. I, I'm one of the characters in it. Uh, okay. But, but at this, in the nineteen mid nineteen eighties to late nineteen eighties, uh, mm. in the Oxford Union, the obviously okay. people like Cameron and uh, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove. We're upstairs debating politics in the Oxford Union, whilst downstairs in the tiny jazz cellar at the Oxford Union, oh, the yeah. Stuart Lee, Armando Yanucci, Al Murray, Sally Phillips, this whole sort of cast of uh, comedians yeah, who are going to yeah. go on to push the entertainment industry in one way and the 
and the uh, and the politicians upstairs pushing the country in a different way. I just think there's sort of a there's an interesting play or book or story. I think in oh definitely in, in those in that kind of divide. And we were you know, and it was like being. Uh, Actually, the guy who set up Tony Brennan died. Unfortunately, at his funeral, I gave his, um, I gave his, uh, you know, I gave a speech about him, and I pointed out it was like we were Guy Fawkes, you know, underneath, literally the Stella, Stella underneath. And we, it might have been better if we, if we rather than doing jokes, we'd just put a load of gunpowder down there, taking take out a generation of politicians. But uh, it, it is, it is fascinating when you do, you know. I think it's, it's a fascinating thing to do to take. Um, you know, to take a situation like this that you've you've done with this book and and extrapolate it and see all of the way that those tendrils sort of yeah. meet meet together and and bump against each other and you know it, I I sort of feel the country maybe I'm wrong the country might have been better had the people downstairs run the country and the people upstairs <laughs> become comedians which they sort of it nearly it, I mean it's something like Armando it, it, and you know everything Armando's done. It almost feels like, you know, yeah. it's sort of the reverse. It was especially with all his political stuff. So I think that's all interesting. But you know, that's by the by. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look, it's a great book. Uh, I've I massively enjoyed it. Uh, it's called Love and Let Die. Uh, John Higgs is the author we've been talking to. Absolutely fantastic. I ask every week. Oh, you do the and, and also before we get onto that, you do the audio book yourself, which uh, is yeah. is, is you're a, you're a very uh, listenable and and fantastic broadcaster. Have you got broadcasting Ooh, so- experience? In the past, because it was very, you know, sometimes an author is is advised not to read their own books, or, or sometimes you wish they hadn't read their own book. Mostly, I like it when the author does read their own books, but it is quite a difficult skill to to do that reading, isn't it? I, well, I guess so. I mean, I've done a lot of them now. I do all yeah. all my own books, and it's such a big part. I mean, the amount of people I meet who can't like, I can't read a book, but I listen to all your books, yeah. and the amount of people I meet, especially couples, who will come up to me after a talk and go, "Oh." we listen to you in, in bed at night and then the, <laughs> a little pause when as if they sort of realize that they've said something they shouldn't like that was too intimate they shouldn't have give, given that sort of away um <laughs> but uh yeah, <laughs> do, you enjoy, yeah no, do, you, do you enjoy the process of doing that or is, i mean it's kind of quite uh i mean your books are hefty as well so it must take you a, a, a while to get to get through all of it yeah i <laughs> It's it's uh, it's not the most fun part of the job, no. but it's an imp- it's an important part of the job, you know. So. It is. Well, all, it really works as an audio book, which not all. You know, I don't think all books are great as audio books, and but this one is very engaging, and you do, you know, I, I judge it by how many times I have to pre- press the go back thirty seconds to uh-huh. miss something because, well, in a way, sometimes a very interesting book can make you start thinking about something else, and then you have to go back, and sometimes yeah. you just drift off thinking about something else. But I was very engaged. <laughs> I've never, I've, you know, I actually listened to this one very, very quickly in a lot in a few days. So it's it's a it's a it's a great audio book. It's also a great book. Uh, I I ask everyone if they are very reading kind. anything at the moment uh, that they would like to recommend. You were recommended last week. Oh uh, yeah, that, I have just read something that is absolutely brilliant. Um, it's not actually out yet. I think That's it's fine. probably out in, in a couple of months. Uh, I'm trying to. It's it's a book called Man Eating Typewriter by Richard Millward, and it's written entirely in Polari. Right. I, you know the um the sort of secret gay language of the 1950s, or, or pe- people who know um Kenneth Williams will be familiar with some yeah. Polari. Um, so you're basically you're reading this 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 book and your your brain is trying to sort of teach itself polari as you go along to sort of which wow. you do which you do yeah. really brilliantly so by the end of the book you're really quite fluent in, in polari but it's so outrageous it's kind of like it's a bit i, I see it's like a it's like if 
Clockwork Orange has been adapted by John Waters at his most sort of, you know, out, out there. Yeah. Um, it's such a lark. It's so fun. It's so, it's so, uh, it's, it's so out of order, right? This, this, um, <laughs> it's, it's about a guy who's, who's sending the chapter of his life story to a publisher on the grounds that he's going to do the most fantastic, most shocking, most awful crime in a couple of months' time. And they might, and he'll probably die. So they might want to sort of, sort of publish the book. And at right. the end of the, at the end of the book, it, it sort of reveals itself to be this, um, this perfectly structured murder mystery. I really cleverly done. Right. You're having such a good time with this sort of outrageous Polari sort of madness throughout the whole thing. <laughs> but you never really noticed that's what the book was. And Fantastic. so at the end of the book, you're like, oh, that's great. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> um, so I love that. That's a book called uh, Man-Eating Typewriter. Okay, great. Ward. Yeah. Well, I will check it out. Uh, and I presume you're working on something else yourself. Is there? Are you able to yeah. give any details of what the next one will be? I'm working about four things at the moment. It's getting a bit. It's getting a bit mad. I'm doing um, a tenth anniversary fancy hardback edition of the KLF book, which right. is going to be an author's commentary edition. I basically go back to it after ten years and yeah. put in like a load of footnotes. I've written about thirteen thousand words of footnotes, looking back after it with hindsight and thinking, "Oh Jesus Christ, what was that? what was that about? Where's this sort <laughs> wow. of?" It's kind Great. of like a. D- it's like a director's commentary on a DVD. Yeah. That's that's the sort that's the sort of oh, thing. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. Um, so that, yeah, and that's so it's mad that. But I mean, the, that book was originally I self-published it as an ebook. Okay. Uh, and then it got picked up and came out as a paperback. And like you know, ten years later, it's coming out as a hardback. So it's it's the whole thing's the wrong way around. The whole thing is just sort of very. <laughs> well, that's sort of very confused. good for uh, for any writers uh, listening that to know that that is that it does work and that you can because uh, you know I often do talk about how how you how you. People, how authors got into publishing because it's obviously very yeah. difficult to get published. So that and that's obviously yeah. that does happen, but not very well, often. So that's a, that's a great thing that it can happen. Oh, absolutely! I, you know, I wouldn't be a writer now if you know Amazon hadn't invented Kindles and their ebook sort of system. And it was just at that point when it was sort of coming through that I thought, oh, I could. Not no one's interested in the KLF, but I am. I am. I'll, <laughs> I could just write it and put it out, and then I'll sort of move on and. um not knowing that, you know, 10 years later, people would still be talking to me about that book every bloody day. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, I, the the downside of this podcast is that I have to read a book every week and it's when I discover an author I like who's got loads of books out. I can't, I can't <laughs> immediately go back and read them all, but I will try and maybe when the, the new K, the new version of the KLF comes out, that, that might be an excuse uh, yeah, to read definitely. that. Well, I, I read all the, the, the <laughs> sorry, the audio books. So if you need something to fall asleep to. Okay. I'm your man. Something to spice up my evening times with my wife. What I've taken <laughs> from this, if we listen to audiobooks in bed, then it can lead to some exciting places. That's, that's, it, it, that's it just my be, understanding. It'll be a beautiful thing, Richard. I'm looking <laughs> forward to those evenings. I'll, I'll let you know. I'll, I'll let you, like George Lazenby style, I'll let you come and uh, watch <laughs> to see to see if it's worked. Uh, right, look, it's <laughs> lovely to talk to you, John. You say uh, that to all your guests. <laughs> Thank you very much for. I don't know who's on next week, uh, but uh, thanks to Chris Evans, not that one, and Ben Evans, not that one, for all their help with this podcast. And thank you to John Higgs. Goodbye. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag. A watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. 
So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. RichardHerring.com slash ballback slash tour or RichardHerring.com slash gigs for all of the information on the tour. GoFasterStripe.com for lots of downloads and books and lots of fun. Thanks for listening. Go and listen to another one. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your friends about the tour. I love you all. I'm out.